For most of us, Lord, we started pretty early this morning, and we've been going pretty, uh, pretty strong and pretty fast uh, ever since then. It just seems to be the nature of our lives, seems to be the nature of uh, our culture and the nature of our existence. A uh, lot of responsibility, a lot of commitments that we have made, and it takes a lot of energy to... Um, to meet all of those demands. And, and as a result, it's very easy for, the, um, for some of the important things to fall by the wayside. Not that providing for a family isn't important, not that our work isn't important, not that uh, um, meeting with friends from time to time is not important. Those are all a significant part of life, and they all play a role. But the scriptures tell us that it is important to be still and to know that you are God. Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There is a high premium in your book for us knowing your book. And not only knowing your book, but taking some time to meditate and to think and to chew on what is true. But we have a great opponent who would seek to keep us so busy and so active that those times when we do take time to think would be few, and they would be very far between. Uh, that's why, at times, so many of us are just running on fumes. There's, there's nothing left in the tank. We forget sometimes. And, and with, with all of the things that scream to be priorities in our lives, if we're not careful, we can squeeze out what is so important, and what is so significant. Now, there have been times when our spiritual disciplines have been going very well, and then it seems like there are other times, Lord, when we just kind of get off center. We don't mean for that to happen, but it does. So tonight, tonight we ask that you would get us back to the priority of not just being here and being with uh, other men, which is a great thing, but recalibrating perhaps our schedules to carve out some time on a consistent basis to be with you. We, we don't say that to make guys feel guilty. We just say it because it's important. And once again, there, there is the tyranny of the urgent, and we are being pulled from a hundred different ways. But we cannot be, afford to be pulled away from you, um, from your perspective, from your truth. So tonight, so tonight, Lord, as we deal with some of the times in life where you seem distant, may you remind us of what actually is going on. And may you give us perspective. And above all, may you give us 
hope. That's what you specialize in. And some of us need a real big dose tonight. So we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to go ahead and, if you would, turn to Job chapter 23. And I'll get there in a few minutes. But I want to read... uh, I want to read a section from a new book that uh, literally has just been handed to me in the last hour. And I, I had enough time to look at the opening pages, and when I looked at them, it became real clear to me that um, uh, this really ties in with where we're going tonight. Um, I'll just jump in here. Uh, the book is called a change in the flight plan. And the author begins by saying, approximately 12 years ago, one of my business partners flew a mutual friend and me from McKinney, Texas to, is it Raton, New Mexico, in his private plane. We spent the better part of three days in the majestic Sangre de Cristo Mountains, and that was it. My friend and I were hooked. When we got back, we couldn't start our own flying lessons quickly enough. Early in pilot training, you were taught how to write out your own flight plan. A flight plan includes facts like your departure and arrival airports, the departure and arrival times, your flying altitude, weather-related information, the color of your plane, personal phone numbers, etc. A private pilot flies and opens a flight plan by contacting the regional air control personnel in his or her area. Upon reaching the destination airport, the pilot then calls in and closes the flight plan. If for any reason a pilot fails to reach the destination airport and closes the flight plan, the regional air controllers have the option of initiating rescue efforts. Just as every pilot has a flight plan, every one of us has our own personal flight plan. We may not have ever taken the time to write out this personal flight plan, but the vision of how our lives will play out is in our minds. We all have certain expectations of ourselves, our spouses, our children, and our friends. We expect certain things from our marriage and our career. We take for granted that our children will outlive us and that they will have children of their own. We dream of retirement, fully expecting that we will enjoy not having a job. We constantly put things off until we have more time and money, and we expect to have more of both in the future, because after all, it's in our flight plan. We expect to remain alive at least as long as our generation's average life expectancy. We even have a plan for how we will die, peacefully and blissfully in our sleep. I could go on and on, but I think you get the picture. Mind you, I'm no different. I had a personal flight plan, which I had filed with the chief air controller. The plan was filled with my expectations of how my life would play out. I used this personal flight plan to pilot the plane of my life, and I was really enjoying the flight. Flying with me were the people in cargo that made up my life. The passengers on this flight included my immediate family and relatives and friends. The cargo included my career as an anesthesiologist, my money, and all my material possessions. In fact, my flight was tracking pretty much right on course with the personal flight plan that I had filed with the chief air controller. 
The interesting thing about flight plans, both real ones and personal ones, is that they are just that, plans. Just like a pilot must react when unexpected circumstances cause the flight to deviate from his flight plan, I suddenly had to do the same. That's because unexpectedly, right in mid-flight, I hit some turbulence, major turbulence, the kind of turbulence that changes not only everything for the pilot, but for the passengers and cargo on board as well. The devastating result was that the personal flight plan I had filed with the chief air controller was suddenly rendered completely useless. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. The author says, My wife came up with the title of this book, A Change in the Flight Plan, because the chief air controller has altered mine significantly. This book is all about the changes that God has made to my flight plan and the effects of those changes in my life. As a friend of mine has pointed out, more often than not, change is painful. That is all, true, that is all too true in my case because I have ALS, which is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. In this book, I take a biblical view of living with this debilitating sickness. As you read, I believe you will discover that God's providence permeates not only this entire book, but my entire life as well. You see, the chief air controller knew exactly what to do when I didn't call him to close my flight plan. He initiated countless rescue activities, all of which have brought me closer to him. Before my diagnosis, I was going to church, studying the Bible, fellowshipping with other believers. All that sounds pretty good, right? Indeed, it was pretty good, but from a spiritual standpoint, now catch this. I'm far better off now, despite having ALS, than I would otherwise have been without it. I know and love God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit much more deeply as a result of his change to my flight plan. Oddly enough, I never set out to write this book. The chapters found here started out as individual papers that helped me organize my thoughts and serve to keep the more applicable scriptures before me. Whenever I would really get depressed, I would go back and read these papers. Before long, I had suffering friends who were asking for them, so copies of these writings began to circulate. It wasn't long before friends were encouraging me to compile them into book form, and that is how a change in the flight plan came about. My sincere hope is that this book will help you when God changes your flight plan. Notice I said when, not if. Change and suffering come to all of us, it's not a matter of if, but of when and how much. I don't pretend to have cornered the market on suffering, but I will tell you that since my diagnosis eight years ago, I have suffered tremendously. I will also tell you that in my darkest hours, I have benefited greatly from the timeless Bible verses found in this book. If you are going through incredibly distressing times, my prayer is that you will find comfort in these writings. Please keep in mind that this book was birthed in pain, suffering, and significant loss. I feel confident in saying that whatever you are going through, you will find solace in these pages. You will discover that there is a divine purpose in your sufferings, and you will grow closer to our gracious Lord Jesus Christ 
both despite and through your pain. Now, I mentioned that this is a new book. It's so new that it literally came off the presses today. That's how new it is. It's so new that the author of the book has not even seen it. Um, But interestingly enough, he's here tonight, as he is every week. Uh, The author of this book is Dr. Paul Lanier, and uh, Paul's been coming here from day one. And, you know, it's, it's my pleasure to present. Hey, Paul, let me give you a copy of your book. There you go, man. God bless you. We appreciate you. I'll let Dave hold it for you, all right? We sure love you, man. We really do. Yeah. You got a picture? Let's get a picture here. Here we go. All right. Thanks. All right, Paul. I'm voting for you in November, man. We love you. We really do. Wasn't that a great introduction? This guy can write. I didn't even know about this. Dave Turtle, Dave, where are you? Stand up for a minute. Dave helped Paul put this together. Let's give a hand to Dave, because he did a lot of the editing. And I had heard that Paul had been writing these papers. And people that have been going through hard times have been reading them and really been getting some help over the last few years. And I thought that was great. And then uh, Dave called me this week and he said, hey, guess what? Uh, A bunch of us were so convinced that that this message ought to get out that uh, he said, we started working on this thing. We got got it published. And he said, "Uh, you know, we'd, we'd uh, we'd like to do something. And what we'd like to do is We'd like to give a copy of Paul's his new book to every guy that's at the study tonight. So on your way out, just pick one up, all right? Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Dave. Now, Dave called me a couple of days ago, and he shot me the introduction, and, and I read it quickly, and then I read it again this afternoon. And I have to tell you something that's really interesting. Uh, I love chance, don't you? <laughs> now, you guys, are, you, you, we're, we're laughing because last year we spent the spring studying providence. And basically, the providence of God teaches us there is no chance. And there are no accidents, and there are no coincidences. There's just the providence of God. Um, what I'm going to teach tonight, originally I was going to teach last week. But... The day before, I thought, you know what, I'm going to hold off a week on that. I just wasn't settled with it. And now I know why. Because that introduction Paul wrote just greased the skids. If, if we had to sit down and had a staff meeting, we couldn't have planned it out any better. But isn't that how the Lord works? If I was going to title this tonight, we're doing a series called Snapshots of Stupid. And... Uh, if you're here for the first time, don't take that personally. Um, even though you're here for the first time, we know you're stupid. And that's why you'll be right at home here, because the rest of us are all stupid. Uh, every guy in this room, we've done stupid things 
and we've said stupid and, we, and we've said stupid things that we wish we could have back, but we can't. Uh, one of the premises we've had during this study is that there's two kinds of stupid. There's permanent stupid, and there's temporary or teachable stupid. What we want to be is teachable stupid. Now, we're not going to eradicate stupidity before we go to be with the Lord. But the goal is to learn from our mistakes. And in the scriptures, we have some men whose lives have been recorded for us and their experiences have been recorded. And you see, we can learn from them as well. So we looked at a number of different people. Tonight, I, I want to, if, if I was doing a title, and Lou always asked me for a title, I, I really have two titles tonight. I, I guess the first one would be the, the Subtle Stupidity of Bitterness. That's the first title. The second title would be what it's, let me back up. The second title would be when it seems like God is against you. Because there are times Paul talked about the flight plan. And he's right. He, he said, I, I, one of the reasons I'm writing the book is for those of you who will one day suffer. And we all suffer in different ways. Not everyone gets Lou Gehrig's disease. Not everyone gets cancer. We all, it's, it's just different. But everyone's going to go through something. And as Paul said, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. So it is going to happen. And here's the deal. To, to follow Paul's metaphor, when, when God changes our flight plan, it often seems that God has deserted us. Let me say that again. When God changes our flight plan, and we got our flight plans, and, and Paul described it so well. You know, we're going to live to a certain age, and we're going to see our kids live, and we're going to see our marriages and all this stuff and our careers. and everything, Everything's, we got a plan. Maybe we've never written it down, but we've got a plan. But when God changes our flight plan, it feels like he has deserted us, and it feels like he has abandoned us. And it feels like he has withdrawn from us. And if you've ever been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, in Job chapter 23, that's where Job was. Because God changed Job's flight plan. And if you know anything about Job's story, you know that his life was going very, very well. Probably going beyond anything he could have ever planned or dreamed. The blessing of God was all over his life. But things quickly change because the charge was made to the Lord by Satan that the only reason, the only reason Job loves you is because you've been so good to him and you've been uh, so overwhelming to him and your goodness and your kindness and your grace and your mercy. No wonder he loves you. My gosh, he's got the greatest life going. But if... You would enable me to harm him and to afflict him. Let's see what he really thinks about you. So the Lord gave permission to Job to do that. And it's all in Job chapter 1. And in a matter of just a few minutes, he loses basically everything, including his children. And Job tears his clothes and he says, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he worshiped. Most of us 
when something is taken away, and we've said this many times in here, we, when something is lost, when something is removed from our lives, our tendency is to say the Lord gives and Satan takes away. But Job said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, what you see in the book of Job is that you see very quickly his flight plan being changed. And when his flight plan got changed, it seemed to him that God had withdrawn from him. If you know Job 23, verse 3, he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Why would he say that? Because the nearness of God was gone in his life. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. But you see, God's not near, God's not close. God's withdrawn. It's almost as though God has deserted him. Note verse 8, if you have any question about this. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. That's a man who feels that he has been deserted by God. Some of you guys have experienced this. You know precisely what I'm talking about. There is nothing more difficult. There is nothing more deflating. There is nothing more exhausting. Uh, there is nothing more disappointing than to be in a place where by all appearances, God has forgotten about you. God has turned against you. He has withdrawn his favor, his mercy, his goodness, and his grace. And your loss by any means of measurement, well, you'll never, you'll never get it back. That's how bad it is. You find this throughout the Scripture. Not, not with, just with Job. Um, look, look at verse 13. He says, but he, meaning God, God is unique, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. In other words, he doesn't chalk this up to Satan. This is between him and God. Job here is going one-on-one -on -one with God. He knows full well that God is sovereign. He knows full well that God is in absolute control. He doesn't have some weak-kneed theology here. He knows the one that is in charge of the universe. Thomas Watson used to say, whatever the affliction, it is the Lord who sends it. A lot of Christians don't buy that. But when you really stop and take a look at what the scriptures teach, you say, well, Steve, Satan afflicted Job. Sure he did. But could he have afflicted Job without the permission of Almighty God? No. So therefore, God was behind it. Because God was going to do something in Job's life. Did Job have any idea that millions and millions and millions and millions of people down through the ages would look to his life and his example as an encouragement in their darkest hour? No. No way he could have known. Because God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. God had an unbelievable plan for Job's life. You talk, most of us want our lives to be significant, don't we? What do you mean most of us? All of us. We want our lives to count. Do you think that Job did not deal every day when he was in the middle of this with the idea that he was having no influence? Whatever influence he had was over and gone? 
He, used, he says in one section, I used to, sit in the, used to stand at the city gates, and he used to settle disputes, and he used to help the poor, and he, used to, he was the leader of the community, but no more. He had lost his influence temporarily. Never could have imagined the good that God would bring out of his affliction. He says in verse 16, It is God who has made my heart faint, and the Almighty who has dismayed me. There is, a, uh, there is what I would call a depression of desertion. A depression of desertion. Uh, if you're someone who takes notes, if you're taking notes, I'll give you four, I'll give you four bullets tonight. And the first one is the depression of desertion. Uh, it's found also in the Psalms. Flip over to Psalm 77, if you would. Here's a classic statement of a guy uh, who has experienced a change in his flight plan, and he is uh, struggling with the seeming desertion and withdrawal of God's goodness in his life. Psalm 77. Uh, Let's start at verse 2. He says, In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. You know, I appreciate this guy's honesty. I'm glad that's in the Bible. Aren't you? These people that walk around all the time. This is the day. This is the day. Sometimes you just want to clock them. You know, and that's great. Because sometimes, you know what? We're, we're, We're just experiencing the goodness and kindness of God all the time. Listen. You know the fact that that God is good to us even when we don't know it all the time. He's good to us in 10 million ways we we have no idea. But when he withdraws, seemingly withdraws, it's it's tough and it's hard. See, usually you go to God and you're comforted. This guy says, when I remember God, then I'm disturbed. When I sigh, you ever sigh? Psalms. Hold, hold on a second. Let me see if I can find this. Psalm 6 6. You know what the guy says? He says, I am weary with my signs. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. <sighs> you ever just sigh? I'm weary with my sign. Back at Psalm 78, or rather Psalm 77, my soul refused to be comforted. Verse 3, when I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. You have held my eyelids open. In other words, you can't sleep. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. So, As we go share the gospel, you be sure and tell everybody if they've got problems and they come to Jesus, their problems are over. 
Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Not always. Sometimes days with Jesus are bitter and hard and difficult and disappointing. It's the way it works. But Jesus told us up front it'd be this way. He said, in the world, you'll have a free ride. He said, in the world, you'll have what? Tribulation. You'll have trouble. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. You've held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Jump to verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? This, hey, this is what you call depression, in case you're wondering. This is depression. Why is he depressed? Because he feels that God has deserted him. Will the Lord reject forever, and will he never be favorable again? He's, he's thinking that might be. Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Well, sometimes it feels that way, that God has just turned off He's just turned the spigot off, and the goodness and loving kindness and the grace and mercy are history. Because you haven't seen it in a while. And it's just one bitter setback and disappointment after another. And they come in waves. Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. God has withdrawn from me. And there's not a cotton-picking thing I can do about it. Flip over to Psalm 73. Here's another guy who has experienced a change in the flight plan. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... See, in other words, everybody else is doing pretty well. I look around and my friends aren't dealing with what I'm dealing with. I, I look around and I see my neighbors and their lives are going pretty well. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. All right, well, well what's going on with this guy? For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, here's a guy that loves the Lord. He's devoted his life to the Lord. He's attempting to follow him. But what's happened to him is there's been a change in his flight plan. He's going through turbulence. The bottom has dropped out of his life. And, and, and what's happened to him, he, he's almost to the point of losing his faith because he looks around at other people who have absolutely no interest in God, that have no interest in in the scriptures, that have no interest in civility or goodness or righteousness or repentance. And he looks at them and their lives, these guys are cruising on all cylinders. They're just going down the freeway 80 miles an hour in cruise control. And life is good and life is sweet and they got everything they want. And see, this is such a disconnect with him. He, he can't quite get this. Wait a minute, Lord. I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to serve you. I've been doing this for years. And the bottom has dropped out of my life. And I see all these other people that are actively against you. And they're cruising. And I'm having a little difficulty with this. 
Ever been there? He wouldn't describe it. He describes it differently than we would, but you'll get the point. Let's read through how he describes the prosperity of the wicked. Uh, For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. And many of us said amen. (laughs) What he means by that, their their body is prosperous. They've got everything they want. They're, They're well provided for. They are not in trouble as other men, like me. Uh, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Their garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. Whatever they can imagine, they attempt to do. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. And, and he's saying, so, so what's the deal? Um, and 10, he says, therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, the wicked say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? He says in verse 12, behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. See, that's a tough, that's, that's tough. Because when you're never at ease, and you look at them, and they're always at ease, they've increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Just didn't add up to the guy. So what's the point, Lord? What's what's the point? This is so serious. The guy's virgin. He's right on the precipice of 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 losing his faith in the goodness of God. Uh, But he's not the only one. Let's go back to Job, because Job dealt with this very same issue. If you look at Job chapter twenty-one. Job is speaking here. And he says in verse 7, Why do the wicked still live, continue on, and also become very powerful? Their descendants are established with them in their sight, uh, unlike Job, whose descendants were taken from him. He lost all of his kids in what we today would call a natural disaster, which God sent. So all of his kids were taken from him. He said, not the wicked. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Mine isn't. And the rod of God is not on them. It's sure on me. Uh, His ox mates without fail. His livestock are productive. His cow calves and does not abort. So God's blessing this evil guy. He's blessing his uh, economic condition. Whatever stocks he buys go up. They send forth their little ones like the flock, and their children skip about. They sing to the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the flute. Job doesn't have that anymore. They spend their days in prosperity. Well, that's not where Job is. 
You see the problem? You see the issue? You see, one of the things that Job dealt with was not just, he didn't deal just with the, with the physical pain and difficulty, but, but along with all that loss came the mental anguish and the mental pain. And, and, and there are some who've experienced both. I've not experienced much physical pain in my life. Uh, there are people who have, and they've also experienced a lot of emotional pain. And I find it interesting that many people that have experienced both great physical pain and both emotional pain, I've heard them say the emotional pain can be worse. Um, not, not to minimize the physical pain. But, but see, once again, these are the statements of, of someone who is dealing with depression. And why are they depressed? Because it appears that God has deserted them. Now, somewhere in your uh, journey, you're going to run into this. How else can I encourage you tonight? <laughs> this isn't a Norman Vincent Peale thing tonight. This isn't a Robert Schuler turn your scars into stars thing. This, this is dealing with the stuff. Uh, sometimes it's very hard. Sometimes it's very difficult. Sometimes God doesn't make sense to borrow from uh, that great title of, uh, of the book James Dobson wrote. Uh, last week, I, I was reading uh, a biography of Aristotle Onassis. Uh, I didn't have much else to read, and it was the only thing I could come up with, so I read it. And, uh, and I'm kind of glad I did, because at one time, Aristotle, not, most of us know him as the guy who married uh, Jacqueline Kennedy. But uh, this guy was a piece of work. At one time, the wealthiest man on the face of the earth. Uh, grew up in a very poor Greek family, but was a world-class liar and deceiver and conniver and lawbreaker, and uh, was able to work his way into the, the shipping industry. And, and a lot of the Greek, there were some Greek families that basically controlled back uh, in, in the first half of the 20th century uh, international shipping. And he somehow wormed his way into that and then managed at the age of 40 to marry uh, a 15-year-old girl whose father was the wealthiest of all the Greek ship owners. And then he got it in there, and then it's, his life is just... I couldn't read too much of it uh, without having to put it down because he just felt dirty reading it. The guy was just a crook. At one time, he, uh, he, he was on the verge of controlling 45% of the entire world's oil reserves. Um, he actually bought Monte Carlo and controlled it and owned it. Um, and Prince Rainier had to pull a very dubious stock deal to get it back. Um, uh, he, his the competition in this guy's life. He basically ruined his son and ruined his daughter, controlled their lives, hired mafia hitmen to intimidate his daughter when she married a guy he didn't like. Uh, unbelievable story. But from all appearances, from all appearances, this guy lived a life that was just, I mean, everything he touched, everything he touched turned to gold, turned to oil, turned to money. We see people like that. We see people on TV, we see people and, you know, they read about there and their lifestyle and their homes and their cars and their 
private jets and this and this and this and this. And we look at our life and we say, what's going on? I'm looking at my notes because I know I have more stuff than I can cover tonight. Uh, so I want all the wicked rich guys to leave right now. <laughs> Maybe we'll bow our heads and you can just slip out. <laughs> I came across a book about a year ago uh, written by Joseph Simons. I'd never heard of this guy. But uh, he's a very obscure pastor in England from about 300 years ago, a Puritan. He wrote a book called The Case and Cure of a Deserted Soul. The case and cure of a deserted soul. So in other words, if you ever find yourself in a position like Job or like the guy in Psalm 73 or like the guy in Psalm 77, and I will tell you something, you don't write a book like this, this thick on desertion when you feel that God's deserted you unless you've been there. You can't write a book like this. Let me read you something he says here. It's a little bit of old English, so you got to stay with me, okay? When God deserts his people, and we got to say this, when it appears that God deserts his people, because he never really deserts us, does he? Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But at times, it seems like he does. It's the appearance. He might withdraw, but his mercy is still there. He's allowing us to go through something for a reason, and he's allowing us to go through something for a season that he controls. When God deserts his people, Simon says, he withholds those acts of love only that are for our well-being, not that are for our being. Makes a distinction between your being and your well-being. Though a Christian may lack that without which he cannot have peace, yet not that without which he cannot live. You getting that? This guy's deep. I'm getting depressed just reading him. Now, what he's saying here, he said, you may not have the stuff you'd like to have. God may withdraw that from you, but he's going to give you what you need. That's essentially what he's saying. Whatever is necessary to the believer's constitution, life, completeness, and stability is never denied. Now, the perks may be gone, but the basics will never be taken away. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Philippians 1.6 says, We are confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So the good work which God started, God is continuing to do. Although at the moment, it doesn't seem like he's doing a good work. He's doing a hard work. When you look at Thomas Watson's book, um, uh, All Things for Good, his first chapter is, the best things work for the godly. The best things work for the godly. You know what his second chapter is? The worst things work for the godly. And it's about three times longer than the first chapter. When something good happens, we know it comes from God. But where we tend to be a little weak is when bad things occur, when the worst things occur, those two are from God. And they work for our good. He says, this then is the thing. When God leaves his people, he does not leave them to the will of the flesh, 
the temptation and snares of the world. But his care is over them in these times. And he is with them, catch this, by a secret maintenance, both guiding and upholding them, and is often most in power when least in appearance. That's good. God is often most in power when he is least in appearance. And when God seems to be turning a man into a desolate and ruinous heap, yet even then he is building and preparing him to be a more excellent structure. The gardener digs up his garden, pulls up his fences, takes up his plants, and to the eye seems to be making a very pleasant place a waste. But we know he is about to mend it, not to mar it, to plant it better, not to destroy it. So God is present even in desertions. And though he seems to annihilate or reduce his new creation into confused chaos, yet it is to repair its ruins and to make it more beautiful and strong. So though at times God takes away our props, it is not that we may fall, but that he may settle us in a greater strength. There's some wisdom there. There's great wisdom there. You know, in, in talking about the wicked and, and this problem when, when your life, when the bottom drops out, you start looking around, you start comparing. Well, how come I've got Lou Gehrig's disease? Nobody else that I know has it. I mean, other people have it, but why has this happened to me? And I know, you know, Paul had a successful medical practice and loved to fly his plane and, you know, lift weights and all that good stuff and, you know, knows other doctors that are living like hell and cheating on their wives and doing that. It didn't happen to them. Why did it happen to him? See, that's just human nature. Because our tendency is to compare, isn't it? That's just our tendency. And you know what's interesting? We tend to compare with people who are better off than we are. That's just human nature. Why do they have it so good? Why do they have it so good? Why do, why, why do they have it? Well, what would be a good exercise for all of us is to compare it with someone who doesn't have near the blessings in your life that you do. You say, I'm not sure they're around. They're around. They may not be in your neighborhood, but they're around within driving distance. These people that have everything but don't know God, they should be pitied. John Flavel, another old dead guy, 300 years ago. He says, it is an, it is an excellent observation of Livy. I don't know who Livy is. Doesn't give the guy its first name, doesn't footnote it, whoever Livy was. And by the way, Livy has a good observation here. And speaking of the wicked, uh, catch this. Sinful policies in their first appearances are pleasant and promising. In their management, they are difficult. And in their event, they are very sad. Say that again. Sinful policies. In other words, when you make sinful plans, the wicked... The prosperous wicked. Sinful policies in their first appearances are pleasant and promising. In their management, they are difficult. It's difficult to manage sin and the consequences of sin. And in their event, in their realization, they're very sad. 
up. Because Aristotle Onassis is dead today. And where are his riches? The, the book I was reading about Onassis, the reason it was written, it was about the death of his son. And the, the, the way that his son died was that uh, Onassis had the biggest yacht in the world. And on this yacht was tethered this uh, seaplane. And Onassis bragged that he could be in any ocean in the world. And a huge crane could take that seaplane, that flying plane, and uh, he could fly out any ocean in the world and be anywhere he needed to be within a matter of hours. Uh, that was his great claim to fame. And the thing was, the whole thing was made up and it was a lie. And, but he lived off lies. And his son eventually died flying that plane with showing another guy how to fly. It's, it's an amazing story. The whole purpose of the book, the author is showing that it was the lies and deception of Onassis that actually killed his own boy and brought his life to a grievous end. Um, your sin will find you out. Real uplifting tonight, isn't it? But you know, guys, the way we live counts. And the choices we make on a daily basis, they count. Uh, if we're not careful, and this is, this is my second bullet, if we're not careful with this stuff, when life falls apart and we start comparing to other people, especially people that are against the Lord and have no interest in God and they're completely self-serving, if we're not careful, we're going to take what I call the bait of bitterness. Now, you find that back in Psalm 73. And this is where, this is where the enemy traps us. This is where the enemy is very, very subtle. And this is where we come up with what we call the subtle stupidity of bitterness. You know, the enemy is, is, is very subtle. Uh, good fishermen pick out the most, the most subtle bait for the type of fish they're going after. Uh, because the whole, purpose, the whole purpose is to con the fish. That's what the enemy wants to do with us. So he begins to con us in our minds, and we begin to compare and say, look at, look at what I've tried to be faithful, I've attempted to follow the Lord, but look what God has uh, allowed and permitted and even planned to come into my life, and look at all these other people, and if you're not careful, you go right over into bitterness. In Psalm 73, beginning with verse 21, he says, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within. See, sometimes these change in flight plans, when the bottom drops out, it cuts you to the core. It just, it's like somebody ripping your heart out. They're ripping your guts out. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. I wasn't reasoning. I was just working off all that had happened to me and I was reacting and I was angry and I was mad and I was... Well, see, that's what happens to us. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. That's the bait. That's the trap. So, so, so how do you fight that off? Well, you've got to take a step back, and you've got to look at the big picture. And this would take me to number three. You have got to think about the chilling effect of consequences. One more time. The chilling effect of consequences. 
So this guy in Psalm 73 says, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We've diagnosed this guy by this point. You understand what the issues are. Why Why has God taken away his goodness from me? Why has God withdrawn from me, apparently? Well, well how, do you, how do you keep from falling over into bitterness? Well, it's, it's found in verse 16 of Psalm 73. He said, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. There's your solution. When it seems that the bottom has dropped out of your life, when it seems that God has broken up your hopes and dreams and all those good things, and you start comparing to people that life's just going, everything they touch turns to gold, the whole Anassas thing, you know, they're healthy, they're wealthy, everything. The only way this guy got perspective was to go into the sanctuary where the presence of God dwelt. And then I perceived their end. In other words, in other words. See, here's what happens, guys. When pain and hardship and difficulty come into our lives and, and, and great disappointment, it's like a 35-millimeter camera. When the pain and the heartache and the grief, all this stuff comes into our lives, what we do is we grab the telephoto lens and we put on the telephoto lens And all we do is focus on the pain and the hurt and the disappointment and the broken hearts. We focus on the pain, and that's all we see. We just zoom in on that pain, and we're just human. But in order to keep perspective, what you've got to do is switch lenses and grab that short lens and that stubby lens and put it on because that's called a wide-angle lens. He says, see, what I had to do was get off what's happening in my life right now, my immediate circumstances, and i got to look at the big picture. And what's the big picture? Those guys may be doing well now, but you know what? That's going to come to an end. Now, that's just the truth of the matter. So you got to factor in eternity here. Uh, It's interesting because back in in Job uh, 21, I want to show you something. Back in Job 21, uh, yeah, in verse 13, you know, he's going on and on about, you know, how these guys have such a good life and an easy life and a prosperous life. Verse 13, they spend their days in prosperity, and suddenly they go down to Sheol. Suddenly it's over. Suddenly it's finished. I remember re- I've read two... Uh, I've read two um, uh, biographies on Joseph Kennedy Sr., who was a real champ, let me tell you. You, you talk about a crook, and you talk about a criminal, and, and you talk about a devious, um, devious, um, I'm editing here. You talk about a real, uh, very good, scoundrel. I don't usually use that word, but for now we'll use it. The, the guy was just a criminal, absolute criminal. Uh, liar, cheat, bootlegger, unbelievable. 
owned a Hollywood studio, would bring the actresses right into his home. JFK, when he was a little boy, stowed away on his dad's sailboat. And he was on there, I, 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 I don't want to say the name because I don't remember, but it was the big time actress of the day. And they're out at sea and he says, I'll surprise my dad. And he walked out and his dad's having sexual intercourse on the deck with this, with this gal. And you know, as a little boy, you know what JFK did? He threw himself in the water to kill himself. His dad had to go in to get him out. He's a wicked guy. Wicked guy. But suddenly his life came to an end. I read two biographies on him. You know his greatest fear was? That he'd have a stroke. Guess what happened to him? He had a stroke. So when we lose perspective, we got to think about the long-term chilling effect of consequences. J.I. Packer tells the story of a friend of his in uh, the academic world in England in his book, Knowing God. This man was a world-class scholar, but he was denied an appointment because of his faith in Christ. And Packer was walking with him after he'd gotten the news. And as the man was assimilating this and the disappointment, and he, you know, it would have been the pinnacle of his career. They were walking the lawns, and at one point he looked at Packer and he said, you know, it really doesn't matter ultimately because I've had the privilege of knowing God, and they don't. Boy, there's a wise man. See, this isn't all there is. This career, not all there is. There's eternity. Robert Layton made this statement about the prosperity of the wicked. He gives more of the world to those that shall have no more hereafter. Let me say that again. This is another guy, 300 years old. These guys wrote weird. But you get his point. He gives more of the world to those that shall have no more hereafter. In other words, why is God giving all these guys this stuff? Guess what? Because they're getting none in the world to come. Where are the rewards coming for us? Today? Oh, God's good to us and God gives us. But where are the rewards? When are they coming? In heaven. We tend to forget that. Number four, um, in the interim, before heaven comes, we have the guidance and the provision of God. Psalm 73, I'll read with verse 23. When the bottom drops out and your plans are changed, God is still there and God is still good and God is still sufficient. He says this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, catch this, receive me to glory. To glory. Verse 28. Uh, actually, verse 27. Uh, i got to read the whole thing. 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And see, guys, that's really the issue. It's eternity. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God right now 
The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Basically what he's saying is, you know what? I'm going to trust in the goodness of God, in the provision of God, in the care of God, and that God is going to give me the essentials and I'm going to live off the promises. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you, even when it feels like it. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Not everything you want, not everything you desire. But you know what? If you know Christ, this is temporary. This is temporary. And if you're suffering, God's doing a great work in your life. For a reason you know nothing about. That's where we trust him. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. So we bow before you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for your goodness, even when it doesn't seem like it. Uh, You're looking to build spiritual muscle in our hearts and in our souls. And there's only one way to do that, and that's through pain and difficulty. It's easy to talk about a change in flight plan when it hasn't happened. But it's sure hard to live when it does happen. Increase our faith. Increase our devotion to you and to the scriptures. And help us to live off of the promises. That's the only way we'll survive in the interim. Give us great hope, we pray, as we ponder the consequences and the fact that this isn't all that there is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.